Welcome to a football show here live from the Cass Collective Studio in the heart of Music Row. In the heart of Nashville. I cannot get that crap right. I screw it up every time. In the heart of Nashville on, on, Music, Row. on Music Row. Cast underscore collective, of course, on the direct uh, on the uh, in- Instagram there. Would we be in the message. kidney of Music Row? Is that maybe where we're at? Maybe the liver of Music Row? Oh, man, that is... That, now I want to spend the entire show discussing what parts of the body are what neighborhoods. There you go. In, in Nashville. Uh, we'll get to... Man, I've got a lot of things to say about that. Okay, Zach, Braden, welcome to the show. Uh, of course, the Kingston Group, We bring you. they bring you a football show every single Monday and Thursday, 1 p.m. Central Time live stream, so make sure you turn on all the notifications. The YouTube page in particular is a good place to go. Uh, and, of course, we'll take all your questions and comments throughout the course of the show. Uh, buildkg.com is the website for the Kingston Group. And if you're going to have a conversation about your house, do any big decisions, remodels, custom builds, selling, buying, all that good stuff, make sure you talk to the Kingston Group. That's buildkg.com. Zach, where can people find you? on other podcasts, on the websites. Give everybody all the stuff. Football and other F-words, wherever you get podcasts, go and subscribe. Listen, then subscribe, and then rate and review. I like to. I like for people to listen first before they subscribe, just because I want to make sure that they do like You're it. handing out free samples of ice cream. Yeah, right. I mean, I, that's how you or get a little people, beer, right? Like a, yeah, a little beer. Yeah. Um, basically, for the show, though, you need to go to 440 Sports YouTube page, turn on your notifications. You need to hit all the share buttons that you can, whatever you're watching us on, whether it's Twitter, whether it's uh, Facebook, YouTube, you know, MySpace, whatever you're watching it on, make sure that you share it constantly. Just share it throughout the whole show. Yeah, just keep pushing the buttons. Yes. Subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, yeah. unsubscribe, resubscribe again, all that good stuff. Interact with us, you know, yeah. whatever whatever it is. It all, it all helps. We do like interacting. We like being in the same room together to, right. do, to do content as well, which is sort of a, a new thing in, yeah. in sports content, being in the same room as the other person that you're doing a show with. Uh, today on the show, we're going to touch on, later at the end, we always try to wrap up with some SEC topics, of course, uh, but we'll talk about some of the rivalries that we think need to be protected as we move to some new scheduling models in the SEC, which are the most important things and rivalries that need to be protected in the SEC. We're going to talk about some of the best and most important players on the Titans defense. One of them, of course, is going to be due a massive contract at the end of this season. Uh, So we'll discuss what Jeffrey Simmons could be worth on the open market and maybe some of the other pieces that you think on the defense could be more important than him. I'm not sure there are any. Uh, And then the the vast majority here, and we're going to start with this, is, is a conversation about Mike Vrabel. And his leadership and his the, the, the philosophy, the coaching, offensive, defensive styles, all that stuff. So we're going to have a, a lot of stuff planned for you guys today on the show, Zach. Good it, to see you, buddy. It's good to see you. It's going to be an awesome show. Uh, we know that there there's content surrounding where uh, Jeffrey Simmons was placed on the top 25, under 25 on CBS Sports. Whether he's too high, too low, underappreciated, overappreciated, no one gives a real shit about that. Yeah, here. We, we don't, don't care about lists. We don't care about speak, rankings. Speak for yourself. We all don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I have no clue where he is on that list. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't, I have not watched the article. I just saw tweets okay. of other shows talking about it. You're, you, like we said, like we've set out to do from the beginning, like we set out to do on the podcast, football, and other F words, like you set out to do on 440 Sports. No empty calories. There you go. That kind of bullshit is for your little <laughs> 8 a.m. shows. <laughs> that is exactly right. No empty calories on the product here. And so the Vrabel discussion, I think, is going to be, I, I'm excited to have this conversation because. I think about Mike Vrabel, and we think about how successful this team has been. I have I have a background in college football, so I'm I'm sort of like forced. Like there's a bias there for me, where it talks about a coach's evolution and and how and now Nick Saban in particular has had to evolve and, and how the game has changed. And so I'm I'm fascinated with a discussion about what Mike Vrabel's ceiling is, 
You've talked a lot in the last few shows, Zach, about Taylor Lewan is not potentially long for for this organization with his contract hit and his age. Yep. We've talked. We had a whole entire episode about Derrick Henry and his future with this organization. The age of the running back. He's reaching a lot of milestones that are concerning. I still think he's good for a couple of years. Um, and, and then, of course, Tannehill's due fifty eight million next year. And might not be the right. quarterback. So there's a lot of things that could be changing. Let's discuss what Mike Vrabel looks like through all of these changes and what is his ceiling. So there's a lot to discuss here on this. And and I just I, I guess my first question is right now, as the Titans are currently constructed, does he have a Super Bowl ceiling as a head coach, in your opinion? Oh, obviously. I, I, I think it's pretty much this guy this guy is gonna bring a Super Bowl to Nashville at some point. And when you really look at it, I, this kind of spawned from what, and we said this during our schedule show. Where I said it's pretty much he is schedule proof. He's gonna he's gonna have a winning record. Does not matter what happens. He somehow finds ways to win games no matter what. And then on last Thursday's show, which you can go find on YouTube, Trevor Sycamore, we mentioned what he said, saying that basically the same thing that Mike Vrabel is Mike Tomlin and he's the new Mike Tomlin. He's depth chart proof. Is he's that what depth, saying? I, I think that at some point when you start ninety one different people and you play twelve and you win twelve games, you're your depth are, chart. Are you, proof. Su- are you suggesting that when you lose the best running back on the planet for half the season, play the most players in the history of one NFL year and take the one seed in your conference? That you are showing that maybe your philosophy is what's is what's working. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think you can make an argument in that the overall arching philosophy in the locker room, his his leadership on the field, his leadership in the locker room behind the scenes in these in these meetings when they split out to their little breakouts when he hops around from quarterback room to running back room, his presence. I feel like is very underappreciated by the fan base and sometimes by certain local media members who think that he's easily already lost a locker room in, in some cases. I, I don't Which, even want to know who said that. Yeah. My, my thing is, is that how many coaches, you could probably count the coaches on one hand that would not have lost the locker room in a season like last season. Yeah, probably. And I think yeah. that you would have an even lesser number of coaches around the league that would have won 12 games. And excelled. And excelled in those 12 games against teams that are supposedly the new hotness, right? I while, mean, while his quarterback took a step back from an efficiency standpoint right, and, and, and losing. I mean, yeah, we, we've re, yeah. we know what happened last year. Like, to me, you know, you look at Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin has now coached the Pittsburgh Steelers 15 straight years. <laughs> Has never. That makes me feel super old. Isn't it crazy? He's never had a losing season. Now, that includes eight and eight seasons because those technically are not losing seasons. Two Super Bowl trips with one Super Bowl win and 10 playoff trips out of those 15. So he's only not. The Steelers have only missed the playoffs five times. And when you look at Vrabel, four straight winning seasons, three of the four resulted in playoff trips. He went 12 and five last year with 91. The. The. I don't think the ceiling is just Super Bowl. I think the ceiling is multiple Super Bowls. So, I, first of all, I love that. I love the optimism. I love uh, how I agree with if you give Vrabel enough time in this spot that eventually it comes, it breaks through. I, I agree with that in general. What I'm curious about and what I want to spend some time talking about today is how does that happen? What does it look like? Because I don't, and to give to kind of piggyback off what you said with some of your stats. So, Pittsburgh, 18 straight seasons without a losing year. Kansas City, nine straight. That's the top two. You know who's number three? The Tennessee Titans. Right. Six consecutive winning seasons. The Rams and the Saints are at five consecutive seasons, and then you go real fast down to three. 
with Buffalo and Green Bay. So the point is getting to five or six consecutive winning seasons is very, di- very difficult. Rabel's done it four of those six times. And, and, and I want to, I want to jump in real quick on this six seasons of wins. I mean, isn't that crazy that it's six straight seasons of wins, even with Mike Malarkey and, <laughs> and Mariota. <laughs> yeah. And, and Mariota. And I, and I kind of agree with the sentiment that came out of OTAs last, last year that I think it's time to forget the pre Mike Malarkey era Titans and the Ken Wisenhunt Titans and quit bringing those up to as a standard for, well, it could always be worse. I, I, to me, because to me now, mean, like just not even acknowledge this, that Mike Vrabel set a new standard in my opinion. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think a lot of that's John Robinson because yeah. that, Funny. Yeah, I know we keep saying Mike Vrabel, Mike Vrabel, Mike Vrabel, but you we're know. kind of packaging. But I think today's conversation is going to be more about like what does the team actually look like on right. the field, and so that's where it's more Vrabel than it is Robinson per se. I mean, again, technically, you got to get the players, right? Yeah. yeah. So you got to get the guys that fit into that evolution. But I think what's interesting is it's not an accident, and I, I know as soon as somebody wants to complain about Isaiah Wilson or. You know, there's going to be, you know, again, Jadavian Clowney, Vic Beasley, whatever things that John Robinson didn't do great. Um, I, I think that it's not a surprise that 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 winning streak starts the year that <laughs> that he took over in 2016. So um, he, here are let me lay out some quick numbers for Mike Vrabel's teams. I, I am not a big believer in yards per game as like a, a, a way to describe efficiency or evaluate a player. But I'm just going to use these as like benchmarks to show what the Titans have been under Mike Vrabel for the four seasons. So going backwards from 21 through his four years, 24th in passing offense last year, 5th in rushing offense. 2020, 23rd in passing offense, 2nd in rushing offense. Again, none of this is earth-shattering here, but I just want to make sure we, we, we lay it out for people. 2019, 21st in rushing, th- or 21st in passing, 3rd in rushing. First year, 2018, 29th in passing, 6th in rushing. You can see a very clear philosophy there of what he wants to do. And if you look on the defense, basically... Third in points per game, 12th, 24th, 6th. Obviously, 2020 was a really bad defensive year that we all sort of acknowledge. Right. Otherwise, they've been pretty good in scoring and, and total defense under Mike Vrabel. So we know the, the baseline, which is physical, line of scrimmage, run the football, play great defense. That's his core philosophy. My question for you is, as we see these roster moves coming, when there's not Derrick Henry standing in the backfield, when Taylor Lewan has moved on, or they've got a new quarterback under center, what is it? Does does he have to change what they are doing to get over the hump and get to that Super Bowl or multiple Super Bowls? In your opinion, because the game is very different than that that um, core philosophy that he has built his career on so far in four years. I, I think I think this this last Super Bowl was pretty interesting in the fact that these teams did both the Bengals and the Rams both continued to run even though the yep. run wasn't working. And they're they're not and now the Rams are the Bengals obviously were not known as a premier rushing team in the NFL right well, like but, and they couldn't protect Joe Burrow yeah so point. to me it's like yes and no with this I I've always come to the th- what needs to change and how Vrabel needs to evolve this team to compete with these other teams to compete with the Buffalo Bills compete with the Chiefs to compete with the Rams over there and you know whoever else you want to throw out there. It's not the fact that they have to change their overall philosophy. They have to change how that philosophy works. Because right now, okay. the passing game cannot work independently. This is all based off of 2021, all, all through Vrabel. It does not operate independently 
of the run game. So the pass game right. can only succeed when play action's working. And play action's technically, in their mind, in Todd Downing's mind, play action only works when your running game works. That's not true, <laughs> but <laughs> that's, that's how, a whole that's different... That's not how football works. Yeah, that's a whole different thing. But that's how they operate. So they got to start operating with the assumption that, okay, if our run game may not work this week. Our pass game has to work and has to move. Does Malik Willis change that? Possibly. Can a lot of people think that they've lost confidence in Ryan Tannehill, and that's was the poor. That's what led to twenty twenty one. What in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty nineteen has led them to ever lose confidence over the offseason last year? To to me, I I think that they are still supremely confident in Ryan Tannehill. This offense can work with Ryan Tannehill. We've seen it work. The, the problem is when you get into the playoffs and everybody wants to shut Derrick Henry down, why is right. the passing offense right. not working? And that's because of the core philosophy ingrained into this offense. It's run game first. Everything else will fall into place. All right, so uh, there's two interesting conversations here. One of them is how we view Ryan Tannehill, how the Titans view Ryan right. Tannehill, which I would argue, and this is just sort of how I've always viewed it, which is I think Ryan Tannehill is the exact same player today as he was last year, as he was the year before, as he was in Miami. He has limitations. He is what he is. And I take the, I take the, the best season of all time, like his 2020, or, uh, yeah, 2020 season, and I take his worst seasons, which were some of them in Miami, maybe last year statistically for the Titans, and I sort of just kind of – I'm not going to throw them out, but if you're looking at statistical anomalies, I look at the body of work for Ryan Tannehill, and I say, this is what you are. You're a 64% passer – with a 6.8 yards per attempt, and you average 1.8 touchdown percentage and a one point. Like I just look at the entire body of work over a hundred games and say, this is what you are. Sometimes you're going to be better than that. Sometimes you're going to be worse than that. I think he's like the 13th best quarterback in the NFL. He was that three years ago. He's going to be that this year. He was this last year. Sometimes you have bad games and bad stretches. So that's one. How do they view him? I don't think they view him as a guy that can go out and win you a game in the playoffs. And I'm not trying to make this a Ryan Tannehill conversation. The, the key is, and you've said this, if, you go, if you're going to evolve the offense away from Derrick Henry, then you probably need a quarterback who can go out and do that, and we don't know if Malik Willis is capable of doing that. So that's one conversation. The other conversation is, can you still win Super Bowls with this type of philosophy that we grew up with, which is play great defense and run the football? Kyle Shanahan is the one I would, I would point to and say, what do we think of Kyle Shanahan? because it's one of the best and most creative and interesting rushing attacks in the league. They've got a great defense. They've been to a Super Bowl. They've been close to another one. Do we think Kyle Shanahan has to evolve and change his offense to win a Super Bowl? I think that Kyle Shanahan has to get out of his own way. I think there is there is something inherently wrong. I think it's with, Jimmy G. When they get into well, I don't <laughs> think it's necessarily Jimmy G by himself. It's it's putting there it's like in the, the Patriots game. There's no reason to get away from what was working, and they got away from what was working. You're talking about the Titans? No, from the Patriots versus the Falcons. When oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Up. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. And then you look at the next Super Bowl where he's playing the Chiefs. Again, they didn't really have to put it on Jimmy G's shoulders. They had a comfortable lead. No, they played well in that game. And then, he's have, then they go crazy in the second half. It's just something happens where they. I think that Kyle Shanahan tries to outthink, outsmart and outthink himself. Okay, and right. I think Vrabel's kind of 
he kind of has that little tendency where he comes <laughs> up with some reason why he did something. And you're like, well, that still doesn't make any sense. And like, you know, he's going to get this one play in because he's like, this is what we studied for a week and a half. Yeah. And we think it's going to work. We know it's going to work. And it's so creative and new that we've got to try it. And maybe it's like didn't. the Chiefs AFC championship game. They came out and went away from what was technically working. And and to me, you got to be able to, when when you got I there's an issue on 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 this team where they get the they get the basically their foot on the throat of the opponent and they kind of let up and let them back give me, in give me some do you have any specifics off the top of your head i know well the chiefs game outside of the i chiefs mean game. uh i would say that uh um, like running through games now in my because i yeah. like because uh, like when they got up on when they were in the game with the new buffalo england game was a little bit different and the, the patriots game was different but I, I feel yeah. like there's. If you go back and look at it, I, I wasn't really prepared to answer that question, <laughs> and my mind's not working today. So uh, I will go back and I'll have that answer on Thursday. There we go. L- lots of good stuff, by the way, yeah. coming up on Thursday's uh, show. Um, I, d- I just think it's. I want you to go further into what what does that evolution like? Are, are does Mike Vrabel have to break from his core identity? To win the Super Bowl, and and, and I if yeah. you if you have the right quarterback, like the easy answer is if you have the right quarterback. The answer is very much no. If you have Aaron Rodgers or Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes, the answer is no. Are they going to get one of those guys in the next couple of years? I sure as heck don't think it's Malik Willis. He doesn't get drafted in the third round if that's how good he is, right? So, Let, lesser you can get to the Super Bowl with a lesser quarterback. We've seen lesser quarterbacks than Ryan Tannehill win Super Bowls before. I don't think the, the I think the philosophy the overarching philosophy of we're going to play really great defense. And we're going to run the ball first and foremost, and we're going to pound them and just wear them down. That can technically work. But when it's not, it's the, the problem is when it's not working. Have the ability to do the other thing. Yeah, you got to have the ability to do everything. They yeah. got to work independently. And that's what I'll hammer home until the end of time. So until we see Mike Vrabel come out and say, okay, we're going to be passing like crazy this game because this they have the world's worst. Pass defense, but the right, right. best rush defense. I think it was the in 2019 when they played, uh, I believe it was the Buccaneers, and when they played the Panthers. The Panthers, I think, had the worst rush defense, yeah. best pass defense, and it was the opposite for the Buccaneers. Worst uh, yeah, it was pass inverted. defense, yeah. and it was inverted. And they did the complete opposite in those games. They, <laughs> they, they tried to attack the strengths of the defense, and... I don't know why they did that at that time, but that's what they got to do. They got to stop attacking the strengths of a defense, which sometimes they're kind of running into a brick wall. So if there's no evolution, do we limit Mike Vrabel's ceiling? Is it like, okay, because it, because what you're asking is you need to be able to throw the ball when you need to. You need to be able to run the ball when you need to. You need to be able to do both when you need to. You need to be able to do all this stuff. I think his core philosophy on defense is – I don't even have any questions, really. Yeah, I don't think he's that stubborn to eventually realize that he's going to have to change a little bit. Because Saban was kind of the same way, right? Saban changes here and there. He he let people have more control. He evolved into this. He involved into the spread. He recruited different size players right. on line, at linebacker, and he, you know different quarterbacks. He went and got the super quarterbacks. And the college is a little different because you can just kind of like pick the guys you want. Especially, I mean, you're Alabama. talking about a, a team that spent the majority of its of its resources in both the the free agency and the draft, the majority of their resources in pass catching yeah, uh, and pass blockers and and these players that improve upon what the deficiencies were last year to hopefully give 
Ryan Tannehill the cast needed to get over that hump. So how specific can you get on details of like formations and strategy and offensive personnel? Because I know you're big on like passing on first down yeah. and you're big out of 12, 11 to 12 personnel and play action go down. Like there's a lot of things that we can kind of point to and say this is what is co- like core to Mike Vrabel. But like what is that actually what does the evolution actually look like outside of the super quarterback? Uh, look at it this way. I think I think the Vikings are going to be a good case study of what this team could eventually be under Mike Vrabel because they got rid of Mike Zimmer, who was the great coach. Is he not cut from a similar cloth? That's as what Vrabel? I'm saying. Yeah, and okay. now they've moved away from him, right? And now yeah. they've let Kevin O'Connell come in, and everything changes a little bit different. Okay. I like where you're going with this. So can you look at average to above yeah. average quarterback? So yeah, so the similar situations, similar star tailback. Yeah, star tailbacks. It's good defenses. Technically, I think the Titans' defense is better, way better. Um, but okay, we'll see what it is. But if if you're looking over at the Vikings as a good case study, because they were, you you go read every Warren Sharp book because he puts out the Sharp Football Analysis book every year. He is just basically demolishing the reputation of Mike Zimmer as a head coach. It is, <laughs> it's fantastic because he's repeating basically the same stuff he says every year, and a lot of the same stuff is the same problems with Mike Vrabel. The difference is that Mike Vrabel still gets the most out of his players despite a little bit of philosophy issues. Yeah. Mike Zimmer can't, can't do anything. Yeah, I, just think, like, I know this sounds like a really bad answer for a, a sports talk show, but it's like I think he's just better. Yeah, he, like, I, mean, I think he's Rabel is just a better coach. But I mean, they have that same inherent philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Defensive head coaches yeah. who want to run the ball, who do not want to put the ball in their quarterback's hands the least amount of possible. So now Kevin O'Connell's coming in, and you're hearing all these great things from the offensive players. Not to say that they need a different head coach. What I'm saying is that they need a different offensive voice in the, yeah. the room. To me, that guy's Tim Kelly. All right, let me that. Okay, so I know you like Tim Kelly, and I think that's a, a a piece that could evolve the offense to some degree. Let me ask you this: If if Arthur Smith was the the coordinator, would you have questions about the offense evolving under Mike Vrabel? Like, let's yeah, let's say he's going to be I, here I for ten so. years. Still, I, I think I think I think so. I think I think there was a. I I think that maybe for some reason I don't. For some reason I think that Arthur Smith pulls Vrabel along somehow. Does that make sense? I don't think so because I don't think that in in when you go back and look at what he did in Atlanta, I get that lesser talent, lesser, lesser one, one year. players, but it, it nothing really changed. Two years, How many nothing, years nothing, nothing changed philosophically for the yeah. Atlanta Falcons from what Arthur Smith was here in Nashville. So I guess we need to see him with his own quarterback, right? Before we kind of decide. What about Lafleur, who steps in with Aaron Rodgers, of course, which is very different. We've seen them find a lot of success, but they're also predicated heavily on running the football still. Does Matt LaFleur, is he the guy that philosophically could have pulled Vrabel along in that? Possibly, but I don't think he has that strong of a personality. Yeah, I agree with that. He's too concerned with how his, I don't, how his I don't beard think, looks. I don't think it's about the personality of the person there. I think it's about the trust that, that Mike, Mike Vrabel likes his buddies. Well, we Todd know Down, I don't think Todd coach, Downing Every is, coach does that. Yeah, I, but what I'm saying is that I don't think Todd Downing's that much of a buddy system. I think that's why you got Tim. All right, Kelly you're living too. You're living too much in real life land, which I no, which I, I know. Which sorry, you are, which you are. But so I'm I'm thinking about it, about it through a schematic standpoint. Yeah, like to me, I look at to Le me, Fleur, Tim Kelly is totally different than anything that they've had here. Even, even more different. Even with those with Arthur Smith and totally different. Okay, 
He, well, that, he is one hundred percent totally a pass happy guy. Maybe that's because he's <laughs> never had a running back. I like a pass happy guy. Yeah, he's never. Maybe he's never had because he's never had a, a Hall of Fame running back. And maybe Derrick Henry is the core issue here. How, but how, I just think that Tim Kelly is a totally different. How much freedom then does he get? I think if, if you're not the if you're not the head coach and you're not the coordinator, how much freedom do they give him to allow him to explore the pass happiness? I, I think he's got total freedom, and and, and it's all about the pat now. Now the qu- the question is Can how Tannehill much do that? the qu- the question really is is how much will Todd Downing utilize the plays that come that come from Tim Kelly in the game script? That's the question. Will Todd? I, mean, that's Downing, what I, I guess that's what I'm asking. Yeah, because he's going to have a great impact on mm. passing concepts, passing designs, the plays themselves. But he doesn't, for what we know. He doesn't control the game script. So, he doesn't control when some what Todd Downing's going to call, when he's going to call it. Yeah, he yeah. can only give him, here's the plays you use in these situations if you want to pass. So do you agree with this? This is sort of a side note, but related to this. Part of the reason I asked about LaFleur and about Arthur Smith is not necessarily because they are more pass-happy than Tim Kelly, but because I trust their innate play-calling ability, which to me, and what do you think? I think play-calling is a feel. Yeah, it's a thing that you either have it or you don't. You can gain experience over time and maybe get better at it. But I think knowing exactly when to to like use Johnu Smith Fleur, on a thing. Fleur like, had one of the worst fills for the game when he was a Tennessee Titan offensive coordinator. I don't think that would have changed. What about what about Art? I think Art. I think Arthur Smith had a really good feel for when to call. I think plays. I think he had games where he had great highs and he had games where he had really bad lows. So of all the names we're talking about here. You trust Tim Kelly from a play calling standpoint, or you or play design standpoint? I, I think right now I would say that if you're looking to get the the passing game to be the next step, to be able to work independently from the run game, then there's no better play caller you could pull from than Tim Kelly, okay. who's never had a run game. So then it it all then boils down to will Vrabel and Todd Downing allow that to infiltrate? The thinking I, and the strategy, right? I think so, right? because like, I think you saw Jim Schwartz infiltrate in yeah. the philosophy of Shane Bowen, and I think to say otherwise Good is kind point. of not paying attention to what happened on the field. I, I think that's a great point, and I hope you're right, because I do think that while Joe... I'm going to use Joe Flacco as the example, because you said there's other quarterbacks like Ryan Tannehill that have won a Super Bowl, and actually, if you pull up Joe Flacco and Ryan Tannehill's career numbers, it is, it is, it's not even eerily, eerie similar. They're just exactly the same. And the reason that they won a Super Bowl was they had a great defense, a really good running game, and Joe Flacco played near-perfect football right. for four games, and they won a Super Bowl. I think Ryan Tannehill and the Titans could totally do that. I don't think that's – is it? Is it likely? Probably not. Is it possible? Absolutely. Right. I think it is. That's, that's where I'm at because I have to see right. it to believe it. Ryan Tannehill has to play a really clean, near-perfect stretch of games, three or four of them. The defense has to be really great, and Derrick Henry needs to be running the football. So what we're saying is, is that that's the formula for how they're currently constructed but that a lot of things are going to have to change. And, and so we are saying that there needs to be an evolution, that Mike Vrabel's ceiling is limited unless there's an evolution on the offense where, again, that's not his baby, but he's – I mean, I'm, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing him out there at OTAs like coaching Malik Willis. Like, yeah. He's good at developing every position. Is he drawing up offensive scheme and calling the plays? No, no. that's not what he does. So he's going to have to have somebody that he, he's, pulls he's, him into the modern football right. world. I, I think when you're when – you, Look at this. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to ask the people at home that are watching, so put your answer in the chat. If Malik Willis had to start day one year Sorry, I was, reading, one, I was reading a question in the chat. If Malik Willis had to start day one year one, 
this year oh, because Tannehill got some kind of injury, and he Tannehill's out for this season. How many games can Mike Vrabel coach Malik Willis to to a victory? Does he still get to nine wins? Because you have to have nine wins or eight eight and one. You have to have a draw to have a winning record. Does he still get a winning record <laughs> if Malik Willis is starting Week One, Day One? You know, that like, that really tells you about I the. Know. I know. That tells you a lot about not only just Mike Vrabel, but also tells you a lot about Ryan Tannehill. I, I don't know. And this is where, like, I, I, I come off as, like, anti-Ryan Tannehill. I, I'm not anti-Ryan Tannehill. I just think there's – I think he's, he's got a ceiling, like we're talking about. Right. I, but I think he's significantly better than Malik Willis right now. Right. Um, I believe in the Titan way. I hate that. But, yeah. like, I believe in the Titan way of next man up and their ability to overcome that, that kind of adversity – I, I think they I don't think they would win the division. I think they could probably get to eight wins. I think that's about right. I think I'd probably set the over under at seven and a half. Right. I might take the over on that, but I don't I don't the like the odds of putting Malik Willis out there in in year one I mean, game we're one. We're talking and about being him with successful. Mike. We're talking about him with Mike Tomlin, right? So Mike Tomlin has yeah. won with way worse quarterbacks and including Ben Roethlisberger. So the thing is, is that if you truly believe in Mike Vrabel, you, I'm not saying you have to say that they're going to go to the playoffs. I don't think they would go to the playoffs with Malik. But Willis do you think starting. they at least get to a winning record, which would require nine wins? And I, I don't think, think so. I think they could, and I and I do I do think so because I think that when you look at the defense and you look at the run game, okay. I think that's that's the good part about the philosophy. They can put the parts are more interchangeable. The, the, yeah, the parts yeah, yeah. are more interchangeable. Malik Willis. You can also use him more as a runner. The the thing would be limiting the mistakes, and that's what this team preaches yeah. day in day out. Even though yeah, the, Ryan Tannehill had a problem, this is now this is a <laughs> contingent on everybody else staying healthy around Malik Willis. Uh, Donnie on Twitter says, or on uh, Twitter on the in the comment section says, why does Braden want uh, to fire Mike Rabel? And it, it listen, I thank you for the comment that did make me laugh. And uh, Clint says Vrabel's flaw. I know you're trying to pull these up here, but Vrabel's flaw is, is loyalty to, to questionable coaching. I actually would argue that's kind of a flaw of every coach in college and pro. I think they're always loyal to a fault to some degree. It always seems like they have to have like some kind of push for, right, from yeah. someone else to make sure that they get fired. Yeah, boosters and and in college and in the NFL, it's just. Now, you can make an argument that maybe his coaching tree is not that diverse, so he doesn't have I could give a, a lot of people to pull. Tree. Well, he, what I'm saying is, is that oh, he you doesn't mean, have people to pull from that he's you. comfortable okay. with. That that could be an issue. I I think if they were to start Malik Willis for an entire season this year and get to a winning record, I think it's an indictment of Ryan Tannehill, and I think it's a huge, huge tip of the cap to Vrabel Titans way thing because I think even if Willis ends up being great – it's pretty hard to go out there in in year one. Now, I will say this about Willis: he's going to you're going to step into a situation that's probably pretty good for most right. rookie quarterback. Like you don't step into one seeds with Derrick Henry and a great defense very well, often. That's when why you're I was so gung ho about drafting a rookie quarterback anyway, because right, right. you're you're stepping into a good. And of course, at the time they had AJ Brown, but you're stepping into a good situation to learn and to cut your teeth on for at least year two. Now, year one, you like you said. Very few. I, I think that if whoever was behind Josh Allen, I don't know who they're. I think Matt Barkley. It was, well, it was uh, Trubisky, right, last year? Yeah, it was was Trubisky. I think it's Matt Barkley now. But let's yeah. say Josh Allen goes down. I think that team's screwed. Oh, I, I don't I, think. I, that's, I, don't, I don't think. If you can, you cannot sit here and say that the Titans would have a winning record with Malik Willis, 
are, are you just are you just that confident in Malik Willis? Because the, the Bills have a roster that's near perfect. And a coaching staff that's pretty darn good. Uh, they don't have a run game to lean back on, so they they you're talking about the philosophies, right? And when you look at the Bills, their philosophy is we're going to put the ball in Josh Allen's hands. Josh Allen's going to be our best rush. James Cook now, right? Yeah, He's drafted him. Uh, the Bills are going to run the ball better this year. Maybe we'll see. Roger Staff. They don't have their play caller either, so we don't really know what Brian for, for or t- Brian Dable's that's, success. That's true. Will be. For the ten games that Roger Saffold plays, they will run the football very well <laughs> yeah. in those games. Um, so I guess try to give me try to boil this entire conversation down to. Give me some actionable, specific things that you think are going to happen that lead to the Titans evolving to a place where you think they become a Super Bowl contender year. And it's not that they're not contenders. We're not saying that. Yeah. But but to just move, just to elevate. To, to keep them level up. In, the, in that contention of upper echelon AFC teams and NFL yeah. teams. The, right now, they need to level up to be that. I think it all hinges state. on Malik Willis. Oh, man. I, I think that because I I would highly doubt unless Malik Willis sees considering playing time that they would draft a quarterback high next year. So they have they are they are all in on Malik Willis. Unless they know the they they would. But how would you know? I, I think if you give him an, enough reps and enough practice and enough film study and enough inter- time spent, like if it's Pat O'Hara. And Tim Kelly and he's already improven. And yes. I know him, but he's already improven week after it's, week. It's funny. I was asking this of of a, a former player on the sideline during practice. I said, "Can you? How quickly can you tell if a guy's got it?" And the answer is, it takes a long time. Like it takes time to figure out if somebody's got it or not. I've seen a lot of guys are, that are great in practice and then just like fall to pieces when the when the lights come on. Yeah. But how quickly can you figure out if a guy's not got it? That that can happen quicker. You can learn and just see like this just just isn't. And I look at him work. and I, I just don't think that he's not. I don't think he's the guy that's going to fall for. I'm not. Finals. I'm not. I, I'm not. I know yeah, you're yeah. not saying that, but I'm just telling I, you. To me, Mike Tom or Mike Tomlin, Mike Vrabel is looking at Malik Willis and saying, "Okay, this is the guy that's going to." Get us to that next step, I, and if you want to take that next step, then you have to have the young was, quarterback that gets you there. And so I think it's going to be end up being Malik Willis. But the guy they passed on three times is the guy they believe in. Here, here's what I would say to to wrap this up. I think that because I think there's more actionable stuff. I think it's I think number one is the quarterback change. I think Derrick Henry. It sounds weird, but like he almost limits them because he's so good that right. they have to give him the ball, which is kind of what you've been saying for 30 minutes now. I I, I to me. If you give Mike Vrabel, Pat O'Hare, Todd Downing, Tim Kelly, John Robinson a full calendar year to work with Malik Willis on the practice field, in the film room, everything, I think they will know at this time next year. If and I guess they're gonna have to know sooner because the the Tannehill decision is what like in when's the Tannehill decision? Uh, in have to early come March. Down? Early March. Okay, before the draft next year, I think they they may not know if he is the guy. I think they'll know if he's not the guy. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's just such a quarterback-friendly offense and philosophy with the way that's Possible. constructed that I'd be very hard-pressed if they didn't think Malik Willis was going to be the guy. And I also say that about Malik Willis. I, th- I, I have a high opinion of Malik Willis. I'm not worried that a team that is built around running the football, that is built around defense, that lost their number one wide receiver, passed on Malik Willis three times anymore. I think he is a very talented player, and I love the situation he's fallen into. I am not believing it yet. Yeah, I think I it's am a not good, a. I'm not a. This is the savior for the next ten years, guy. I'm yet. a. I'm a chip on the shoulder kind of guy. Like I think that Malik Willis is kind of that guy too, and I think that Malik Willis, when you really look at it, he's going to be. I'm not saying he's Josh Allen. I'm not saying he's Justin Herbert, but I'm saying he's at least 
can be Ryan Tannehill. Those guys are at least four or five inches taller than him. Um, there's that. Uh, all right. Well, I think it's a fascinating discussion to study for Titans fans. It's not a thing that they need to worry about like right now because this team is built a different way, and they're going to go on, and they're going to play exactly the way Mike Vrabel always has wanted them to play. They're probably going to be exactly like these numbers, right? They're probably going to be 20th in passing offense and 5th in rushing uh, d- offense, and they're probably gonna have a top ten defense, and they're probably gonna win, have a winning season. Right? <laughs> so, like they're they, the way they are now is good. The question is how do we get to great? And I think that's it's it, it revolves around the quarterback. Uh, unfortunately, and that doesn't it doesn't have to be to Malik Willis, but it does revolve around the quarterback. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Here, uh, Stony Keeley chimes in and says, before we move on to um, defensive players, he says has to be able to keep winning after a rebuild. He can keep the train rolling without Henry Tannehill, Big Jeff, etc. Can he keep the train rolling? I guess without Tannehill, Big Jeff. Uh, First of all, where's why is Stoney getting rid of Big Jeff? I don't know. That's, I guess I guess he's about to talk Big about Jeff. That. Uh, in other words, uh, show that important personnel changes won't affect results year over year. I think he's done a lot of that, to be honest. Now, nothing like what we're talking about, Lawan Tannehill Henry. He did change from Mariota to Tannehill, though. Yeah. He went out and got him for nothing, got Miami to pay for half of it, and it worked. Right. I, I thought it was a silly move, and it worked. It worked way better than anyone could could have possibly imagined. So I think there's more proof of concept in changing personnel than we think. Um, when you just cut Malcolm Butler, when you do, you know, like there's, right. you just cut Jarrell Casey, like heartbeat of heart and soul of your team. I think there's more proof of concept there with their ability to change personnel, um, than you think. All right, let's get into the defensive personnel here. And I just, I was, I was thinking about this concept and, and this topic that you brought up. And I thought, first of all, I started jotting down the names. And if you start writing down the names and you're like, who's the most important player in this defense? And you start looking at where their best player at a position is in the NFL, they have a star at almost every position on the defense. Like Harold Landry got paid like a star. You may not think he's a star, but Bud Dupree and Harold Landry are among the better pass rusher tandems in the NFL. I would argue Jeff Sermons. Yeah, but that's not technically you don't have someone of star status. Okay, they're not. He's not TJ Watt. But maybe best duo. Okay, I, would, I could argue. Okay. I, I could see that, but like, I'm not going to sit here and say that Harold Landry is a star. And I'm and not. So Christian Fulton's going to fall into this category as well. I don't think he's a star, but do I think he's as good as most teams' but number near, ones? He's near elite. I, I think, I think the, he's very close to that. So level. I, point I don't is, think Landry and Dupree are there. Okay, maybe I, as a duo, but not as they okay. they make up one really great. One of the best safeties in the NFL. Agree. I think one of the best number one corners. Not the best, but like among yeah. pretty good corners in the NFL. I, I think Zach Cunningham is wildly underrated. <laughs> I don't know why. The I, I think Texans, David Long's even more underrated than I, him. I, not by Titans fans, but he, I think right by outside. the whole. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I think Jeff Simmons might be the best defensive tackle in the league because Aaron Donald currently is not in it, technically. Um, I, again, I think the pass rush duo is, is as good as anybody else. Why isn't Aaron Donald in the league? Well, he's not signing his deal. He's threatening retirement, all this other stuff, right? Like, I thought that he said he's okay he just with sign it. No, he, he, does, he, he just, doesn't have a deal to sign. It's an extension. That just happened like in the last day? Yeah, I missed that? He's, I'm okay. still under contract. Okay. Well, I thought there was a chance he was still deciding. Or No, okay. he, he came out and said that. So I, he's the that second, was all bunk. So he's the second best yeah. defensive tackle in the NFL, in my opinion. Um, I, the, point, the point I'm trying to make is that you look across this roster on defense, there is not a weak number one in almost any position. Right. They are good at almost every position. There's depth at every position. Um, but who is the most important when you take that piece away, just like we're talking about with the offense? I think that remains a, a very difficult question to answer. I, I think it's Kevin for Byard. You. For you. I think it's Kevin Byard. And, you know, in 2020, listen, he deserved all the shit that was piled on him for a bad 2020. Now, listen, he wasn't the only bad player. 
to play in that horrendous 2020 defense, but he was an issue. His play took a step back. Yeah. These people that... Which think, he said, by the way. Like yeah. He said it. Well, I think that also the people that think that they should have to... we After his 2021, is it time to apologize to Kevin Byard? No. <laughs> he, he sucked in 2020, and he deserved to be called out for his bullshit. But... Not everybody we, is perfect that, on every game. Well, that proved... Well, he, there was like 16 of them. That he proved that that was an outlier. That year was an outlier for Kevin Byard. And you're talking about a guy that I think has the notoriety among those that vote in pro bowling, all pro, in that choose defensive player of the year. I think you could be looking, if he continues and puts up another outstanding 2022 campaign to go along with this 2021 campaign. There's a good chance we, Kevin Byard is in the Defensive Player of the Year candidate. And in yep. my mind, for the importance of this defense, right, most important player, he's a veteran, he's a leader, and he gets to see the whole field from his vantage point to help make sure everybody's in their place, right? Okay. Vocal. If you, if, yeah, if he's vocal. If High you profile. Take him, if you take him off the field, who is his replacement? His replacement is like Theo Jackson, Elijah um. Molden, uh, maybe uh, not good. Yeah, I mean it's a bunch yeah, of. It guys. might be Jackson actually. Yeah, so you take him off the field, that defense considerably goes goes down. Now, Simmons does a lot up front, and I'm not saying that Simmons is an important player, but I feel like his. I think that in a pass happy league, his presence, Kevin Byard's presence okay. means more. All right, let's have a debate here. This is the debate because if as the game is changing, has changed, whatever. You know, corners become a premium paid position. Wide receivers a premium paid position. I think Jeffrey Simmons, I, I, to me, it would be Jeffrey Simmons would be the most important player on the defense because of how much he affects every other piece on the field, like on every single pa- on every single play, not just pass plays or rushing plays. And this is not to to discount Kevin Byard at all because I, I the problem is is I think Jeffrey Simmons can stop a lot of plays before they even get to Kevin Byer. <laughs> like there's a lot of weeks he disappears too. And 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 here's the problem, I think you're 100% right that Kevin Byard is a more likely player of the year candidate. Like I would put Zach Cunningham on player of the year candidates because you can stack up rack up stats, right? Like you if you've got four or five sacks and a he, couple he's interceptions. Pretty, he's pretty reviled and hated among the national And maybe that's vote. and maybe that's true and that's a frankly if 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 people don't like you and that's how you're voting on an award, then shame on you for that. Well, that's, I mean, they, they, when I say that he's hated, it's not because, you know, he kicked their puppy or anything. It's because <laughs> they don't think he's any good. Well, okay, maybe, and maybe that's true. And, and again, this is, we're sort of like, we're both kind of saying the same thing here, which is that statistics, right? Fantasy right. stats or whatever. I know you're not an IDP guy, but like, if you have 130 tackles and six sacks and three interceptions and two forced fumbles and a fumble recovery and a block kick, and a return touchdown, people are going to look at that and go, you just made plays the entire season, and they probably give you some votes for something that's sometimes that is he hard. He may get Pro Bowl. Well, like, right. let's, let's, Byard, let's stop it there. Bayard can do a lot of that, too, where yeah. he'll end up with five. He could have five or six interceptions and a bunch of pass deflections and a couple forced fumbles and maybe a couple sacks off the edge and a, you know 75 tackles or whatever, and that makes, it, makes him, because those numbers are easy to quantify and look at and vote on, the stuff that Jeffrey Simmons does is not easy to quantify and to vote on. And I know he had a bunch of sacks last year, but when, when you stand up a guard on a play that's supposed to run into the A gap and you stand up a guard and just throw him into the gap and then you don't even touch the ball carrier, but your linebacker, David Long, dr- jumps right into the gap and makes a tackle for a one-yard gain, 
That that was really all Jeffrey Simmons that made that. Well, he's play. also buying you the time to to get some of these plays done as well. You know, I, I understand. But, but I, like I, think, if, I think I think uh, I think if you were to make say most valuable and most important, most valuable I think would be I would argue I think difference? I would make an argument for Simmons. Most important is there's more to it than just play on the field. Look, guess who's at? Guess who's at? Uh, okay. Like, look who's okay. at uh, training camp helping out all the young youngins. So you're going, you're going to go to OTAs and say that Jeffrey Simmons didn't show up and now he's I, not a leader? No. He's not an important no, piece on the field saying, because he's not I'm at OTAs? Saying, what I'm saying is, is that veteran, that's an example of veteran presence mm. and leadership that is off the field and on the field that is so important for this team okay. and it's so important for All Mike right. Vrabel. It's most important. Most valuable, I think I would maybe lean to Jeffrey Simmons because he allows everybody else to do all to do okay. their job a little bit like better. Bud Dupree's job is easier because you have Jeffrey Simmons. Dinko Autry's job is easier because you have Jeffrey Simmons. Harold Landry's job is easier. Because you have Bud Dupree. <laughs> also because yeah. of Jeffrey no, Simmons. If, if you take Bud Dupree off the field, oh Harold Landry's not as good. And guess who's still there on those games is Jeffrey Simmons. When you are an offensive coordinator and an offensive line coach, and, you, and you're sitting down in your meeting room to prepare for the Tennessee Titans, the number one number that you circle, that you stop, that you focus on first is 98. That is the guy you circle and say, we have to neutralize this player first before we can worry about anybody else. And I think, I think you're right if you're going to argue like veteran leadership, having more experience, a more vocal guy. That's, I, I can see where you're coming from with Byron. Yeah. I can get on board with that. But if you're telling me that the offensive coordinators around the league sit down on the first day of install and they are focused on 31 instead of 98, I don't. I don't think I, that's I think true. those are interchangeable week to week depending on the team. Okay. And I I think that you think the Chiefs I are well, focused on cuz like how about the Bills? The Bills single-handedly got stopped by Jeffrey Simmons multiple times. Yeah. In the fourth quarter of that game. And they were just torching the secondary. Well, maybe that's because they were more paid attention trying to attack way find ways to attack the secondary. So they were focused on Kevin Byers, yeah. you're saying. All right. Let me let I me. Think, ask I think you there, I think there's some subtle differences between the two. I, I, can, I think it's very close. I can get on board with what you're saying. But let's let's make no excuse. Harold Land. Here's some Harold Landry slander for you. <laughs> Harold Landry's success is fully dependent upon the guy on the other side of the field, not on Jeffrey Simmons. I, I don't think it's 100. percent Well, the, the facts I, I think, would, would would back it up. Meaning, when Bud Dupree's off the field, Harold Landry's a zero, and when yeah. he's on the field, he's everything. I, I think I would. I need to study those the, the numbers you've got there, but I I think it's you more. You go to BroadwaySportsMedia.com and look <laughs> and go search for Bud Dupree, and you will find a whole article where I dictate, or actually probably need to search Harold Landry because it was about his contract and how yeah, yeah. it may be an overpay. Because they can get out after a couple. Yeah. Of years. Well, I mean, it's not a big yeah, deal. Funny the contracts really don't make a difference anymore, but. I think that Harold Landry has shown that in games, even last year, in 2020 and in 2021, that whether Simmons is on the field or not, it's all about who's across from him for him to succeed. <laughs> Chris, in our comments, says, heard it here first. Zach says Simmons is a poor mentor. <laughs> Here's what I would say. I do not think it's a surprise that Harold Landry had his best season when Bud Dupree, Danico Autry, and Jeffrey Simmons were next to him. Yeah, well, he that? had his best games and by far racked up all of his stats when Bud Dupree was there. I, I, I agree with – I am not arguing the point that yeah. when you have to worry about two guys coming off the edge that it changes your, your game plan. Yeah. I don't think there's any question about that. I, here's the other thing. There's a lot of other great candidates. And I, the reason I brought all those names up at the beginning, Landry and Cunningham and Fulton, 
was to show that there's a lot of really good quality players at high high value positions at every spot on the defense. Not to say that anyone's in the Simmons Bayard conversation. I think it's the two of them. Yeah, and those would be the two that we that that we would discuss and and we did. I, I, there's a lot of great players on this defense. Oh yeah, like, the defense is a lot of great players on this defense, and none of them I think are in that category because I don't. Who would be number three? Like Bud Dupree is what you're saying. Ooh. Like I would put Danico Autry, but I'm a I'm a big believer of trench warfare, like middle yeah guys that just. I would say maybe Christian Fulton would be pretty. That's would it. be I think you would have like there's a tier of Christian Fulton, uh, Danico Autry, and Bud Dupree are kind of like all hovering around each other. Kind of how like Simmons and Byard yeah. are in their own. Tier. And Harold Landry is. And Monty Hooker could be. Is, Harold Landry's is down there overlooked. with uh, like Roger McCreary. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, he's he's pretty down far on the list. I mean, he's like Tier Tart or something. Christian Fulton about to get paid as well. Um, by the way, uh, Jeffrey Simmons, about $21, $22 million. I think people need to start getting their heads around that number. Which is not a, a large... When you go look at what defensive tackles are paid, he yeah. may, depending on when Aaron Donald retires, he may be the highest paid defensive tackle based on... He's still in the league. You no know, AAV. Yeah. Still in the league. Still in the league. Uh, so, Donald signed a six-year, $135 million contract at 27 years old. Simmons will be 25 here in a couple of, I think, a couple of weeks. I, I think you're looking at like a five-year, $115 million, which puts What's you right around 23. 23. I just think people, yeah, I think 21 to 23 is where you need to get your head around it as a fan. Yeah, which I think everybody would be fine. At, at a certain point, I think this last offseason has proven that Unless Jeffrey Simmons comes in and makes these incredible high demands, they're going to pay him what the market value dictates. Yeah. And unless he comes in and says, "Well, I want two hundred million guaranteed," <laughs> you know, then he's, and he's twenty four technically today. Again, I think he turns twenty five here coming up in a, in like six weeks or so. Um, and so that means you'll be getting his twenty six year old, twenty seven year old, twenty eight year old, twenty nine year old season if you signed a four year deal yeah. extension. I think it'll be a five year deal, gets, three year out. And then by the time you're but even if he played every single game, yeah, you're still you'd be done game. at 30 years old. Yeah. I, I think you're getting this is primo territory to pay Jeffrey Simmons again. Right. Th this is a guy with pedigree too, like elite five star recruit. We know what he did in college, but uh, we're not talking about that right now. So, uh, all right, um, quickly here, SEC rivalries that need. We'll wrap up with the SEC here. Uh, SEC rivalries that need to be protected. We've talked a lot about this with the one and seven and the three and six scheduling model. You guys have followed all along here. I, I just want to put out some. I want to run some things by you as, and I'll kind of call you the casual college football fan yeah, for this I conversation. I think that's fair. And I think there's some non-negotiables that need to be protected in, in this conference in the future. Again, you have to include Texas and Oklahoma right. in this. Uh, I, the Iron Bowl is obviously one of them. Yeah. Uh, the Egg Bowl is obviously one of them. Right. Ole Miss, Mississippi State. I think that Texas and Oklahoma needs to be protected. Yeah, obviously. I also instantly think that Texas and Texas A&M should be protected, which automatically puts me in the three and six group where you need to right. have three rivalries that are protected. Um, Florida, Georgia, yep, to me is non-negotiable. After that, there's a lot of like really good rivalries that like I would have Tennessee, Florida. Yeah, I think that's in a category. The, but a lot of people older would say Bama. Some people think Kentucky should be protected for Tennessee. So I think Tennessee, the league office has an interesting decision to make with when it comes to Tennessee. If you're if you're looking for teams that bring competitive balance and bring parity, then it should not be UT and Alabama, in my opinion. You need to take <laughs> not, UT not lately. And, and need to put them with I think with Kentucky. And with Florida, because I think you can have a good back and forth as long as Mark Stoops continues on his trajectory. To be, to be fair, since it sounds like you forgot everything that happened in the 90s, like Tennessee dominated that rivalry over Alabama. 
Oh like, well, for like a good fourteen years. Listen, when so, when what we'll years. do is we'll go back to an AM radio station in the '90s and we'll talk <laughs> about this fucking rivalry in the '90s. Well, this is why it I want Florida. What, what I'm saying is, is Saban will eventually not be there anymore, and that what I what, what says I mean, who? Listen, I'm not a Bama defender here. I'm not. Defi- yeah, it's true. He's getting injections as we speak. Yeah. Um, I'm not a Bama Tennessee rivalry defender. I, I think that anyone over forty probably loves that rivalry. Everyone under forty probably thinks I like me. I grew up with Florida Tennessee as the thing because they split into divisions and that Spurrier-Fulmer thing was so good. Uh, my point being, the only reason I brought that up about Bama is that Tennessee has had long stretches of dominating that rivalry too. I just don't think it's that juicy anymore for people. Like, I don't think it yeah, gets people Yeah, well, going. I mean, like you said, it was 20-something years ago. Yeah. I mean, let's, I mean, that it's over. Up until basically 05, from like 93 to 05, Tennessee kind of dominated that rivalry. Now, Alabama has come back and dominated was, the whole thing since. I was telling our producer, Sean, he goes, oh, that's convenient that you're an Alabama fan. I said, well, it wasn't that convenient between Gene Stallings <laughs> and Nick Saban. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it was it was the worst stretch of a, football ever, I feel like. Lost to, like, Troy or Yule Monroe in there yeah. one time in, like, 06, 07. Um, I, I, like, I think people are obsessed with, tennis, or with uh, LSU-Alabama, which is a great game today, but for 50 years it wasn't that great of a game. And so I think that one's a tricky one. Well, I think you got to look at there, – there are certain rivalries, like you depicted, that have been around for centuries, it feels like. And they've been around for decades upon Multiple decades. centuries. But you got – if you're looking to make money – to create parity, you have to get away from the old guard and get into these new guards and develop new rivalries. And I, and I don't think that Tennessee Florida is that new of a rivalry that should not be considered as a protected rivalry from the SEC standpoint. Am I? Am I? No, I don't think you. I think that's right. I, Florida Tennessee to me would be top priority as a, if I'm a Tennessee fan and I'm saying, like, if the SEC office were to pull every Tennessee fan and say, "Who is the number one rival you want to protect?" I think it's all Florida. I would I think, vote for I Florida. Think, I think it's eighty percent would be Florida. I, I think th- even the old guards would say. I, Florida. I think a lot of people would say. I think a lot of old people would say, "Bam." I disagree with you on that. I think a lot of people are saying Kentucky right now, which I find which seems so odd. Because odd. Well, yeah. they won like twenty. That one seems weird to me because you can't that you can't claim you're a big boy and then be like, "No, let's have Kentucky and Vandy right. as our as our permanent schedules." LSU Florida is a really interesting one. Yeah. People are obsessed with that one because it's been their permanent crossover since 92. But it's a great game. It has been a great game. I don't know if they're going to protect that one because LSU's got A&M. LSU's got Arkansas. LSU's got Ole Miss. Florida's got Georgia and Tennessee potentially. And, oh, by the way, South Carolina and Florida's a good game. I just don't know where – like they're going to – to your point, if you want young people to continue coming back to your product, which obviously is not necessarily a huge problem for college football, but – you have to balance out protecting old rivalries with like the cool new thing of like imagine Alabama Oklahoma playing every year. Oh, that'd be that'd be, that'd be great. And you can be, use this as a launch point to build new rivalries too. It doesn't even have yes, to be exactly exactly. That's the thing is that they have to look at it. I think if you were to maybe build it perfectly, you have your old rival, you have your kind of newish rival, and then you build a rival. Like so, Missouri, you're picking three. Yeah, I, teams. I think that's exactly right. I think with and so like for Alabama, right. What, I think they're going to protect Tech, Tennessee and Alabama. I wouldn't agree with that, but I think that's right. what they're going to do. But what you do is, you, if you're Alabama, you could do very easily. You could go with um, Auburn. You go with either LSU or Tennessee, and then you go with like Oklahoma, and that's right. your new one. Missouri's interesting, and Arkansas is interesting because they have history and A and M. They have history with those schools from the Big Twelve, like and the yeah. Southwest Conference. And so Missouri played in a Big Twelve championship game against Oklahoma. They, they've they've played against each other and have history. So. Like, why wouldn't Missouri be included in playing some of those teams? So I think that there's ways, to your point, to find some of these things. Like, Auburn, Georgia is an interesting one. 
Like Auburn, Georgia's the deep South oldest rivalry. It's been around literally for over like almost a hundred years. Uh, it, there's two great programs, generally some great games. I think that one's going to get protected, but that makes Auburn and Georgia's schedules very difficult right out of the gate, which right now I'm okay with because they're great. Right. It, it will be interesting to see because I think that they're 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 having to balance not losing people, which I don't think really any any real no SEC chance. fans no are going to lose. No, no one's going to stop yeah. watching because. Mississippi State and Auburn aren't playing. Like if you got rid of the Iron Bowl, I think that would cause a big. It would be a vocal snafu if you want to call it. You would. You would. I can't even imagine what Twitter would look like. Right. Said, oh, the Iron Bowl is not going to happen. So you got to make sure that you're balancing what's going on with the old people, with the kind of newish people, and the people that are going to be watching your product in 20 years. That that's what I try to tell people. I think it's a great way to look at it. Which is, why would you put Oklahoma and Alabama together every year? And I'm going. Imagine 2050. Right. It's 2050, and we've been watching SEC football for the last 30 years, and we have 30 consecutive meetings between Alabama and Oklahoma to discuss. Like, to me, that sounds fantastic. Doesn't it, doesn't it make Auburn and versus Alabama so much better when they put up, you know, here's what's happened in these games, and, yeah. you know, the Nick Saban, the kick six, and, you know, they bring up all this yeah. storied history even with other stuff. Having the, in 2050, 4K is going to look like staticky, <laughs> right. you know, old 80s footage of a game, and that's what it's all, that's what college football is about, and that's what college football has, I think, over even college basketball, almost over every sport, is the, his, the emphasis on history. And you're yeah. right. You have to build new histories. Right. You. It's you, like planting trees. Right. Like we live in Tornado Alley now, apparently in Middle Tennessee. But like, what, we've lost so many trees in our neighborhood from all the storms in the last couple of years. You have to. You have to build. You're planting the trees for 30 years down the road. You're not planting the trees for next year or the year after that. You're planting the trees to rebuild, the, rebeautify the neighborhood in 2050. Right. That's a that 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 you have to look at it 25 years down the road. And so, like, is Ole Miss and LSU the Magnolia Bowl. Maybe that's get maybe that's something that gets sacrificed because we don't have space for it. Maybe that's what happens. Tennessee Vanderbilt. I think that's good for Tennessee fans and it's good for the state of Tennessee, but that one could be that one could be out of there because it's just I think they should just get rid of Vanderbilt football. <laughs> I'm just some they're just I've no no offense to Clark Lee, but you know he's he's a good dude. He's a good yeah, dude. He, he may need to LSU A and M LSU A and M is a perfect example of a newish rivalry. They used to play a lot before they went to the Big Twelve, but they have baseball history. They have now cultural interwoven community history because of the I-10 rivalry right there. All Since Katrina, all those people that were in Louisiana have moved to southeast Texas, and so now there's like communities that are interwoven. Like That's what makes a great rivalry to me, and, and I think that like A&M LSU is one I would almost protect because I think it's so great. Right. That it's, and, but it, it, it's new and old at the same time, so that's what makes it so special. So I don't like what, – what, what's South Carolina? What are they? Yeah, see, that's the thing. It's like, like South Carolina. When you look at South Carolina, Vanderbilt, Florida? even to a lesser extent, Kentucky. These teams that kind of that they have maybe rivals in their mind, but I don't yeah. think anybody considers them a part of a uh, all time great rival. Well, Kentucky and Vanderbilt have been around Tennessee, let's say in Florida, yeah. for a hundred years, like since thirty three when they formed the league. South Carolina's only been around since ninety two in the yeah. conference. Same thing with Arkansas, which is why when somebody says Arkansas Tennessee is a rivalry, I'm like. Because of one Clint Sterner fumble in 98, like right. I don't, I, so I think there's, 
The beauty of the scheduling, as we've talked about now, is that they're going to play all a lot more often, and that's the most important thing. But who are they going to protect? Um, again, on the Twitters, I, I threw out the list of names that I think they should protect, so you can check that out shamelessly. At Braden Gall, of course, at Efforts Pod for, for Zach, and of course, Broadway Sports Media. Cast Collective is where we're sitting here, this awesome studio here, uh, at ca- uh, Cast underscore Collective on Instagram. If you want a private event, you want some place to host uh, uh, a get-together for an office or, or family gathering, please check them out, Cast underscore Collective. And of course... Uh, buildkg.com, the Kingston Group, our title sponsor here on the show. We appreciate all the work, all support from those guys. So check out the website if you're going to do some work on your house. Okay, which brings us to some serial takes. And we'll finish up on uh, some serial takes here. Because I think this was, was this Austin Huff, I believe, yes. that, shoot, that shot this out this morning? Um, God bless that man's energy levels, by the way. I don't know how he's got the energy levels to do all the things that he does. Um, but something about cereal, best cereal in the world, whatever, and you threw out Fruity Pebbles, to which I responded that that's not even a top 10 cereal. Which is, which is totally and utterly a scientific fact that it is. You have proof. Yes. Sales. Sales doesn't, that doesn't. That, that tells you what the people love. What, that, that tells me people are stupid, is what that tells me. Because, because s- if you want to do sales, then you go look at a country music chart. Mm-hmm. Well, look at the garbage on that chart. Listen, most sales. I'm telling you, cereal with fruity pebbles and the milk that comes in afterwards. It's one of the best. It's like it's up there with cinnamon toast crunch with that after cereal taste. Cinnamon toast crunch, top ten cereal, no question about it. Um, I would put cocoa puffs in the top ten. See, I wouldn't. No, okay, Captain. Some ca- some form of Captain Crunch belongs in the top now, ten. Now, I, I will say this. I think that I think that probably as a nation. I think objectively, Cocoa Crunch is, or Cocoa Puffs, Cocoa or whatever. Puffs. I don't probably, like Cocoa Krispies, none of that. I think, I think Cocoa Puffs is probably up there in the top 10. Would I put it in my personal okay. top 10? No. Pops would be top 10 as a country. Oh, you think so? I think so. I think it was like the most popular cereal all through the 90s, I feel like. Maybe that was, maybe that's like, maybe that's like the Tennessee-Florida rivalry. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I remember there being a lot of Pops commercials, but I don't know, is it still that relevant anymore? Yeah, I I think I think Pops is a pretty recognizable brand and a pretty awesome cereal too. Like it would be top ten for me as well. Uh, Lucky Charms is up there, top ten probably as a country. Yeah, as a country, no question. But I wouldn't put it in my top ten. So here's my problem with Fruity Pebbles: is it falls into this category of cereal where I look at it and I just go, if I'm gonna consume garbage for an entire bowl, like I don't mind doing it and I understand what I'm doing, but like it would never cross my mind to buy Smacks. Yeah, but I think never, Smacks is a totally it would never cr- Fruity Pebbles would never occur to me. It just turns into like wet artificial yellow number five. It's see just that, like see that to me like, is, is, it's the bowl is of the blood. beauty of Fruity Pebbles because it starts out so crunchy and crisp, and then it turns into this milk. But it's gone in like seconds. Well, you usually if you're if you're if you're whining and dining off cereal and taking your time, you know, with a candle, lighting your candles. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. That would not be the cereal for you. But if you are I'm not trying, trying to, to romance eat, somebody with if cereal, if you're trying to eat cereal before you go out somewhere, then Fruity Pebbles is perfect. You don't need before it. you go out somewhere. Yeah, you don't need in the mornings. Go to school or something. Okay, okay, okay. You know, you don't need this long, you know, buffet plate style. That's of not what cereal. I'm saying. I'm just saying. I see Smacks and Fruity Pebbles and a few other cereals. Smacks is one of the worst cereals ever made. As like, and, and Fruity Pebbles I, is not I, that. And that is, that is just that is more science it is tra- that you're ignoring. It's trailer park cereal. No. It's trailer park cereal. No. Is that offensive to anybody? Can I say that? I don't know. We'll see. It's tra- it's, you know, you know what we'll cereal... We'll see on Thursday if I'm the only one here. <laughs> you can't cancel me. I own the company. Uh, Ruth Langmore would eat Fruity Pebbles on top of a trailer with her dead cousin. 
Well, I don't think that there's uh, anything spoiler, wrong with that. Spoiler alert. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think I think what's the beauty about Fruity Pebbles is that it doesn't know any cultural bounds. It is it is a cereal for the people by the people. Now I will say, in all fairness, self like I'll make fun of myself a little bit here because I grew up with like really bad cereals because my parents were like, no, none of this stuff. I like I do love Rice Chex, Crispix, Frosted Mini Wheats. Like I like a lot of that stuff. Frosted like, Mini Wheats. It's like sort of. It's not like healthy, but it's like not the worst thing. It's flavorless to me. But like see, all I, that stuff is flavorless. I, it's just I, like you're eating carbs. I love Crispix. I think they're really good. Uh, Life is my favorite cereal, which I understand people like laugh at, but that that is my favorite they cereal. Life. They sh- they definitely should. Hey, Mikey, he likes it. Best cereal on the on the on the. On the entire sh- shelf. I'm sure. I'm sure Mikey like, is probably 60 years old, and it's how these your cereal takes are are basically a 60 year old cereal. Well, take. it's better than a three year old take. Like Fruity Pebbles is like, oh look at the colors. No, Fruity Pebbles is, is delicious. It's the flavor. When like? they added the, when they added the blue raspberry flake, that was life. You could tell. You could. You could really like the. Oh, I could. The aromatics of yeah. the blue raspberry Fruity Pebble it. really it's, changed. It's, it's, the it's a taste experience. aromatic, mm-hmm. uh, aromatic on the tongue, a tongue matic I think it's a. I, I think Fruity Pebbles belong in Ruth Moore's. And that's okay, but it trailer. also can be in Elon Musk's uh, spaceship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and just like that, you can send it to the moon. It's fine. <laughs> I'm fine. Get that crap out of here. Uh, send us all your cereal takes. How about that? And you can insult me because, again, Kix was like a sweet cereal for me growing up as a kid. So I was, I was, I'm jaded. And don't forget about the person. versatility of Fruity Pebbles. Rice Krispie Treats, donuts. Oh, magnificent. I, I will say the, the Rice Krispie Treat Fruity Pebble... Uh, marshmallow gooey thing not bad that's pretty good but again that's a baked item that's a baked good not a cereal it that's turns good. to mush yeah, it's fine in your red ass bowl okay all right we're done talking cereal we're done with the football show kingston group cast collective f words pod broadway sports media all the 440 show uh, sports shows by the way uh, big one on thursday we're gonna have some insight into the titan stadium coming up on thursday as well so make sure you're tuned in one o'clock p.m mondays and thursdays right here of course in the Cask Collective Studio. For Zach, I'm Braden. This has been a football show.